Welcome to another Food on the Age podcast episode hosted by JP McMahon and Przemek Brosz. We are currently in beautiful Anir in Galway and today's topic is cheese. Hi, this is the Food on the Edge podcast and I'm your host, JP McMahon. What about cheese? Well, I suppose we have, um, we have a very uh, rich and fertile cheese production in Ireland. And on the one side, we have a gigantic cheese industry in terms of the processed cheeses, um, which I suppose are available in supermarkets and most people will, will know these. But I suppose I'm most interested in what they call farmhouse cheeses. And these are usually cheeses that are made with either milk from the, the farm or uh, milk from, from close by. Often they're raw milk cheeses, uh, but they generally have some type of uh, artisanal quality to them. They're generally made in smaller batches. And, and these are the ones that I think that are uh, most interesting in terms of the terroir of cheese and I suppose what makes an impact in terms of uh, Irish cheese internationally when you look at French cheeses and Spanish cheeses and Italian cheeses. It's these cheeses, uh, such as Malines, Gubin, uh, Duras, Saintola, Corleggi. There's, there's loads and loads of different Irish farmhouse cheeses. So people will be wondering when it, when this started. And uh, really, we, we have a long history of cheese production in Ireland and, and eating cheese. And, and that goes all the way back to um, the 8th or 9th century. It could even go back even further with uh, trade with the Romans and possibly the Romans uh, introduced cheese making into England and, uh, and Ireland. Or maybe the Celts did. That is a possibility. But uh, we have mentions of cheese making in texts from the kind of 10th or 11th century um, century on. There's a very famous poem that uh, that mentions cheese, and that's usually people's uh, starting point. And it seems the monk made some cheese as well, and possibly they brought these practices to uh, to France. And and then th these practices kind of, I suppose, returned from France, particularly in the, in the late 20th century, when um, uh, three women in particular, Goubine, Malines, and Duras, very much uh, spearheaded the farmhouse cheese revolution and uh, and really got the whole country making really really good terroir driven artisanal cheese so what actually is cheese technically so cheese is, is preserved milk and um, we often forget um, where our products come from particularly butter and cheese and, and both, both butter and cheese come out of the same tradition of, of preservation so when we think of a butter butter is preserved cream and in some respects preserved milk as well i suppose the difference is that when you make butter you you whip the fat of the of the milk until it solidifies and you get the buttermilk product that comes out of it with cheese you uh, acidify the milk and you separate it between curd and and whey the curd goes on to make the cheese and the whey is used in in a variety of other industries such as whey protein or as a drink in and of itself but curd the process of making cheese again is, is where it began is 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 debatable it more than likely began somewhere in the in the middle east where shepherds probably carried a milk in animal stomachs and this is where you get the rennet which is what splits uh, the milk and possibly they realized that the curds which were milk solids kept better than the, the milk product and this probably developed over time but you have mentions by, by the Egyptians and mentions in, in the Bible of cheese making practices and, and really what happens is once the curd is, is uh, separated and you, you take out the excess moisture you air dry it and that is the beginning of the cheese 
most often now is uh, bacteria is injected into the milk and the, and this culture helps develop the cheese. So whether you want to make a soft, fluffy goat's cheese or you want to make a cheddar or a Parmesan style cheese, it all, it's all dependent on the, on the bacteria you use. And these uh, bacteria can be purchased in, in many places. It's very, very easy to make your own cheese, particularly a soft, new cheese. Um, and it's something we do in the, in the restaurant all the time. But making a, a more kind of complex cheese, particularly a cheddar, that's aged over a few months or any of the washed rind cheeses that we have great examples of in Ireland they're much more difficult and that's when you have special drying conditions now they're usually dried in special chambers like fridges or uh, traditionally they were dried in caves where you had you had a wind that would dry the cheese but also you need to be a little warmer than a fridge because if it's in the cold place then you won't get effective drying and then mold will grow so there's a little bit of technical specification uh, and now there's quite a lot of science about it but before i mean when you we, I suppose you look back and particularly ancient farmhouse cheeses in in france and in spain as well and um, a lot of them were just passed down from families and they were just different traditions so it's a little poem time again it's always poem time on the food in the age podcast so this is the um, from the vision of uh a congline hopefully i'm pronouncing that right um it's from the 11th or 12th century and uh it's about um, a monk that tries to cure um his uh, patron of gluttony and uh, there's a very famous passage in it that speaks of of cheese a lake of new milk i beheld in the midst of a fair plain i saw a well-appointed house touched with butter as i went all around it to view its arrangement i saw that puddings fresh boiled were in tatch roods its two soft doorposts of custard its dais of curds and butter beds of glorious lards many shields of tin pressed cheese under the straps of those shields were men of soft sweet smooth cheese everyone seems to be made of cheese in this poem um, <laughs> men who knew not to wound a gale spears of old butter had each of them a huge cauldron full of meat methought i'd try to tackle it boiled leafy kale brown white a brimming vessel full of milk a bacon house of two scored ribs a wattling of trip support of clans of every food pleasant to man meseemed the whole was gathered there so it seems the monks were, were eaten well, you know. And uh, as I said already, it, it seems that possibly Irish monks went to France and Switzerland and introduced traditions that lived on. So you could, there is an argument that the Irish taught Europe how to make cheese, but I don't know how well it would stand up in court. So we were talking about how the cheese was made and, and the different types of cheese. And of course, everybody knows the famous cheeses like cheddar or blue cheese. People know these. And they're, they're great examples of cheddar and blue cheese in the Irish farmhouse tradition. You've culatin cheddar, which is a really, really beautiful cheddar cheese. And then on the blue front, of course, Cashel Blue has been made for many, many years. And it's probably one of the first farmhouse cheeses in Ireland. But you've got some really, really good uh, young cheese makers, uh, such as Young Buck, which is made up in Belfast. It's a cheese we use a lot in and near and then you also have Bellingham Blue and there's also a, a blue brie that's made in Ireland Wicklow Brew Brie which I actually think is, is a really really nice um, blue cheese as well Before you go any further I was wondering is there any reason that Irish cheese is really strong? Uh, it's a, a cheese is always down to the milk you know and like I wouldn't 
I suppose all of the, not all of them, but many of the farmhouse cheeses have a really pronounced flavor. And that's probably because they were made in that kind of strong French tradition that influenced Veronica Steele when she made Malines and also uh, Jeff Gill when she made Duras. So they're in that French uh, monster tradition, particularly Duras is in that tradition. And I suppose it's a way of appreciating cheese. I mean, uh, all of the kind of highly processed cheese that you get in Ireland, all of the cheddar styles are very actually mild. And, and again, there's place for both of them in the sense that, I mean, my kids, kids generally don't like uh, really, really intense cheeses. And it's, it's kind of like a, almost you've got to kind of uh, get them onto, like, uh, get them onto it, you know? Um, so like the gateway drug for cheese is, is the mild cheddar and then you got to move them on to the Duras and the Malines and, um, and and that takes a, a bit of getting used to but I think it's because that kind of strong cheese is uh, for me anyway it sings more of the of the place that it comes from and, and there's a lot of different characteristics and I, I think that I'm not saying I want the smelliest cheese in the world that you have like uh, Cabrales that blue cheese that Spanish blue cheese that absolutely wipes out every taste bud you have in your mouth even though it, it, it's a nice cheese but you just cannot eat a lot of it but i suppose those cheeses have a lot of character and generally when you talk about a cheese having character which is generally to do with the the strength of the cheese and malines again is uh, when you leave that out at room temperature and it starts to melt and ooze the character becomes much more pronounced and uh, i suppose we've become very very used to eating cheese straight out of the fridge and eating it cold but really cheese is best served at room temperature and uh, there should be a, like a slight hum from it. I'm not saying leave it out for too long, but certainly you want, you want to let it kind of get the room temperature um, at it. So we're going to talk about cheese classifications. And there's a wonderful quote in um, Glenn Anderson and John McLaughlin's Farmhouse Cheeses of Ireland. And it's anonymous, but it's, it says there are two types of cheeses, smelly and stinky. Now, we have kind of like touched upon that already, but it, it's a little bit uh, different to that. I mean depending on the milk that you use predominantly it's cow's milk but also you get goat's milk and you get sheep's milk it's not very common but you can also milk a horse and you can milk a reindeer and you can also milk a pig but it's not very productive to milk a pig but i don't know if there's anyone listening that wants to start making pig's cheese but i think it's difficult to get the milk out of them you can leave that to the pig farmers but generally you have four larger groups and you have a hard cheese which is generally quite dry like a parmesan or a, or a cheddar it's generally nearly half the moisture content is gone from it you got a semi-hard cheese cheese which is usually probably a month to two or three months old cheddars would generally be six months or or even sometimes a cheddar could be a year some of the parmesan cheeses i think are three to five years as well you've got a blue cheese again which is the cheese that has been inoculated with bacteria and then you've got a soft cheese which is predominantly like goat's cheese which is very very young and they're generally those 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 type of cheeses are the ones that have um, the the shortest shelf life we didn't mention that when cheese is made salt is very very important as well because the salt helps preserve the cheese so the salt content of the cheese will affect how long the cheese lasts what about cottage cheese is it really cheese or is it only cheese by the name yeah i think cottage cheese is uh, cottage cheese and cream cheese are are two cheeses that you could argue are not a cheese because usually a cheese is, is um is a set 
substance like a set milk so it's been molded and and that becomes a cheese a cottage cheese is is when the curd and the ways are still uh haven't been separated fully so it's a very very fresh cheese and um, the same with creamed cheese which is very interesting because now when we think of cream cheese we think of brands like philadelphia which became uh, famous for for their cream cheese and cream cheese now is cheese with cream whipped together so it's kind of like a cheese spread but before uh, what cream cheese was again it was a way of preserving the curds without making the cheese and in the, the O'Donovan cookbook from I think 1711 there's a recipe and it was to cream cheese as opposed to cream cheese so it was actually the verb to cream cheese and what would they would do was that they would whip the curd like so much that the whey would come out and you would left you would be left with a kind of creamed substance so the, the cream cheese originally came from this tradition but more than likely i think german cheesemakers brought it to philadelphia and then this is what became um, known as uh, cream cheese it's cream cheese is generally the ones that you make for use for cheesecake but also goat's curd i've, I've made cheesecake with goat's curd particularly uh Saint-Tola goat's curd and it's nice it's a little bit more acidic and a little bit bitter it's not as uh, as sweet but i think it again it, it gives it a, a better um character when when you when you're making the cheeses in the, in terms of their classifications particularly farmhouse cheeses they're often have very interesting rinds and so you have um washed rind cheeses when the rind will be washed whether it's in a brine or in a in an alcohol and this is to help preserve the inside of the cheese and then you also have surface ripened cheeses where you will get a, a kind of a slight mold on the cheese like an edible an edible mode this is uh, quite common in a lot of goats cheeses but it's also quite common in some uh, young cow's cheeses and um, where you can eat the whole rind. There's various different ones. Generally, when it goes to the cheddar, you're, you're not eating the rind. And uh, with the younger cheeses, you can eat the rind. But I think sometimes it's just a question of taste. Hi, this is the Food on the Edge podcast, and I'm your host, JP McMahon. Okay, so now let's move to the real life situation. I'm in a shop. You're in a shop and you need to buy some cheese yeah. and you need to make a cheese board or you want to do a recipe with some cheese. Or and have some wine. Wine and cheese. Wine and, and cheese, cheese. Is, is probably the, the two nicest things in life after <laughs> your wife and children, of course. It is getting a lot easier to buy really good farmhouse cheese. I mean, when you think about maybe 10 or 15 years ago, you had the English market in Cork, you had Sheridan's Cheesemongers in Dublin and Galway, and they're still probably the places that I would go to first to buy cheese because you have in a when you talk to a cheesemonger they're able to advise you when you go to the supermarket you're by yourself and that's not to say you can't get farmhouse cheese in the supermarket now um, I know loads of the supermarkets are stocking different farmhouse cheeses now so again it's just you, you need to be intelligent in terms of you need to give yourself a bit of time because a lot of cheeses that are made uh, now not only in Ireland but all over Europe so often the milk is from somewhere else and you need to turn the packet around and, and it will always tell you where the cheese is made and there are several Irish cheddars that are not made in Ireland or I mean they have an Irish name and they're not made in Ireland anymore or there's also several Irish cheeses where the milk is not from Ireland and the reason is some people say the reason is for a consistency of product or they don't have enough milk or it's cheaper it's more economical that is the one side for me that that makes the farmhouse cheese so great is uh or the farmhouse cheese movement is generally i mean 99 percent of the time the milk is from nearby 
And if not, the milk is actually from the person from their farm and they're making the cheese as well. And of course, that makes it more expensive. It also, I think, makes the quality better. It also makes it more interesting, gives it more character. And again, these are questions that we all need to think about. I'm not a, by no means a purist, so I'm not going to say like farmhouse cheese is the only cheese you're ever going to eat and the only one you're ever going to buy. There's always cheeses for different occasions, but I do think more transparency in the processed cheese industry would help people make better decisions because there's many, many products now, Irish products with Irish brand names that are not made in Ireland anymore because they've been bought by someone. And I think there needs to be better labeling laws like say Sucre, which is the Irish sugar, which is made in Germany. Uh, we don't make sugar in Ireland anymore either. Most people don't know this because they look at it and say Sucre. Oh, wow, it's Irish sugar. This also happens with uh, cheeses and it happens with various different hams and porks. And, and, th and that's a whole different podcast. It's like why we can't get our labeling laws straight because when it comes to certain products like our beef, we will not allow anyone to uh, mess with Irish beef. If it says Irish, it's Irish. But with fish, uh, we're not so concerned sometimes. And with pork and then with cheese, it gets even worse because you transport the milk, the cheese is made in Ireland. Is it Irish cheese then? Some would say it is Irish cheese, even if the milk comes from Holland. Some would say, no, the milk needs to be Irish as well. They, oh, you also have this, the, the opposite problem as well. If you take Irish milk and make your cheese in Germany, is it Irish cheese uh, either? So. Again, I'm sure you can argue for both, but what's your position on it? My position? No, like I would say resolutely no. <laughs> I would say uh, I have no problem with these practices because often they're economical, but they should not carry a label. If 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 the cheese is made in Ireland with Irish milk, then it's Irish. If you bring your milk to Holland and make cheese there and then bring it back and give it some name like, I don't know, Jeremy O'Reilly's cheese, even though Jeremy's probably an English name. Gabriel, and that's probably an English name as well. Anyway, Paddy, Paddy Murphy's cheese. No, I think there's no transparency there, or at least say this cheese has been made in Ireland with uh, foreign milk again. Look, you were in the EU, so things get very, very complicated because we all want to be Irish and we all want to be European at the same time. And you don't want to mess with the EU because you can see what's happening in England at the moment. So back to cheese. We were talking about buying it. Yeah. Shopping basket. Shopping basket. And also when you want to put a cheese board together and generally you don't want all of the same cheese. So you don't want four blue cheeses because then unless you're having a blue cheese tasting with your friends and you're seriously into blue cheese. But generally what I like what we do in an ear and, and what we do in tartare as well is try and combine like four different cheeses on the cheese spectrum so we would start off with say a sheep's cheese which is quite mild a little bit like a like a manchego not as hard as a cheddar then i think like a really nice fluffy goat's cheese and you'll get these in any of the cheesemongers uh, saint tola is a great example of it then you also have some soft cheeses like corleggi it's like a soft cow's cheese. And then you go into the spectrum of the harder cheddars like Kulatin, or you can go towards like the kind of stronger cheeses like Moline's or Duras. And then you're onto the blues like Youngbuck, Cashel, Crozier. And generally I try and stay within that range. I mean, you can be, if you want to say, I only like goat's cheese, you can get four different goat's cheeses on, on a nice spectrum. You can get really soft, fluffy ones. You can get slightly hard ones as well. And also you can go for four different cheeses in the same classification, like our similar classification. So you could have Malines and Duras, and then you could try to put in like Goubine, uh, which is not as intense, but it is still a hard cheese. So there's loads of different ways to play around with it. 
And the reason for going from the mild cheese to the strong one is obviously once you treat yourself with the blue cheese, your senses are dead. Yeah, pretty much. It's very hard to come back from from a blue, from a blue cheese. And I remember once having the Cabrales, the Spanish blue cheese, and it's so acidic, but also a kind of like mild hint of ammonia that it literally just there's like you you have to wait a few minutes for your mouth to recover because you just don't you can't taste anything else. And so that's why you start off with the younger cheeses and work towards the blue. Now I, I know Spanish people that eat Cabrales out of a jar and just kind of lap it up. Blue cheese is also really nice whipped with butter as a to put with steak or that because it's very very intense but if you don't like blue cheese at all you don't need to go near it at all you know. I, blue cheese is, is an acquired flavour. It's not something you're born with and you go I love blue cheese but it is something that as you eat the blue cheese different blue cheeses you get more used to it and so you don't want to start off with the most intense strong one and that's why you go to a place like the English market or you go to Fallon or you go to Sheridan's and you can say I'd love an Irish blue cheese that isn't going to like blow the head off me and they'll probably recommend something on the milder spectrum you know I find Crozier blue cheese quite mild it's not too intense whereas when you get uh, Young Buck I think is a more intense blue cheese and then Kearney blue as well which is another another wonderful new Irish blue cheese I think they're a bit more for the mature palate you know and uh Definitely, you can have fun with that and you can get like lovely red wine. Red wine and blue cheese go really well together because the red wine is acidic and it has a bit of shape and body and it's able to kind of counteract. But one of the reasons why cheese and wine work so well together is because you need something to not only wash the cheese down, but you need something to balance out the rich fattiness of the cheese. And so white wine and red wine work really well for different cheeses. And also you have the whole tradition of port and sherry which are very common. When you say cheese board to most people, they would think of port because it's uh, it's sweeter, it has alcohol, it has a bit of body. Like they're not, they're not gonna say, oh, I'd love a kind of crisp white, but I love having different wines with different cheeses because it makes it more fun. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about a few different cheese makers in Ireland or different cheeses and uh, again cheese is very particular to your palate. There's also in the, there's another wonderful poem in the, in the book I already mentioned by John Hayworth in the 16th century and it does talk about how different people like different cheese and again as, as you were saying Shamak, I mean not everyone loves that strong stinky cheese in the tradition of those wonderful French cheeses and also Malines follows in that but some of the really nice cheeses that I love and again there's there are maybe 47 there's probably maybe even 50 different cheese farmers cheese makers in Ireland and there's probably about well over 150 cheeses so that the often the one cheesemaker will might make three different cheeses like say uh, St. Tola for example they have their curd their log they have their they have hard cheese a Greek style cheese and they also have their ash log so like that's five cheeses in the one and, and it's about value added product rather than just selling selling one cheese but we mentioned Kulatin and uh, the really really nice cheddar you have Corleggi cheese really really nice uh, raw milk uh, raw milk cheese Duris probably one of the most famous farmhouse cheeses Glee Breton which was used to be made by David Turner. I think actually Gleebrehen is not made anymore since David passed away. But it was a really, really amazing cheese. Killeen, Nocturna, Malines, Mossfield. Literally, you could travel the country eating Irish farmhouse cheese. And possibly there is a, a map of, I, I don't know, maybe it's something someone should do. But I just want to look at the three cheeses for that for me, wouldn't say, if you say began at all, and someone should, surely someone is going to come in and, uh, and contradict me. But we already mentioned 
Duris and Malines. But then you also have the Gubine, which is made by Gina Ferguson and her son uh, Fingal now has wonderful charcuterie products and he also makes knives as well. But the Gubine has been made since the 70s. And again, the, it's, it's a really, really amazing cheese. And it's not, it's not too intense. For me, it's, it sits somewhere in between those kind of French cheeses and a cheddar. And it, it is one, one that's really interesting for if, you, if, you're, if, you're, starting, if, you're, uh, if you're starting out. Other than the three women who started it all, Veronica Steele, Gina Ferguson, and Jeffa Gill, all from that kind of 1970s, working within that French and Spanish farmhouse cheese tradition. You also have Cashel Blue cheese, and Cashel Blue, which is made in Tipperary, which is it's a very, very famous cheese internationally as well. And they also make a Crozier Blue, and they're also very much into organic farming as well and organic cheeses. Cashel has been made since the early 1980s, and the late Myrtle Allen, who, uh, who ran Ballymaloo House for many, many years, talked about Cashel and Malines has been very, very formative in the beginnings of the Irish cheese board. So Myrtle said in the in the late um, 70s that it, most restaurants you went to in Ireland always had the French cheeses and we didn't have any cheeses of our own. And the first cheese that, that she said that she put on her board was Malines. And the, the, the really interesting thing was, I think John McKenna uh, told me this story, was that the cheese used to be sent on the bus by itself from uh, West Cork to Cork and then the bus driver used to put it on another bus. And then, the, so the cheese had its own seat and then it used to be collected in East Cork. It's a pity we don't transport cheeses like that anymore. And so Malines was one of the first cheeses that made it onto the, the Irish cheese board. And, and we have, I suppose we have to credit Myrtle with uh, really encouraging the tradition. Of course, that tradition grew anyway, but the fact that we have a cheese board in Anir now and, and in Tartar with, with only Irish cheeses uh, is testament, I think, to uh, to people like Myrtle and um, Veronica Steele that, that championed the champion the cheeses so we do have to credit people like Myrtle and uh, Veronica Steele for helping the Irish cheese board grow the fact that we serve four Irish cheeses on our boards now in Anir and in Tartar is part of that tradition that began well over 40 years ago and I suppose for me what needs to continue is more and more cheese boards in Ireland looking at different farmhouse cheeses and more and more restaurants looking at it. It's not to say we want to exclude French and Spanish cheeses or Italian cheeses. We have our own Spanish restaurant Cava and we, we, we only serve Spanish cheese there. And it's just that for uh, restaurants in general to really uh, to try and think a little bit more about uh, the Irish farmhouse tradition and, and seeing how they can engage with it. There is cheesemakers all over the country. So whether you're in Cork, you're in Limerick, you're in Dingle or Donegal, there are cheesemakers everywhere and it's it's a nice thing I think to offer a number of cheeses either from your area or from the wider island of Ireland. How you see future of Irish cheese making? Like on the one side it's really positive because we have all these young cheesemakers. Um, we have a new cheese in um, in Anir made by Larry Maguire of the Galway Goat Farm. It's a really, really nice cheese. Again, it's, it's goat's cheese that's in the tradition. Canuck Dove, it's called. 
it's in that French trees tradition but again it's acquiring its own uh, its own legs now in that respect it's really positive on the on the negative side we have a lot of difficulties with raw milk in Ireland and uh, cheesemakers are finding very very difficult to access raw milk because of the legislation and I'd hope that um, the powers that be understand that raw milk cheeses are really really important and that we have to keep this tradition alive and if we legislate it to death and it's overregulated, then we won't have that cheese tradition anymore so not only is raw milk like a really really good product and I think there's a lot of scaremongering about raw milk but uh, on that side I think we really need to change our way the cheesemakers have been campaigning an awful lot uh, for raw milk and for uh, access to, to for raw milk for their cheeses and it does make a more distinctive quality cheese and it's very very different to that processed cheese that is made on bulk and I just hope that we don't go entirely into this area where we're just mass producing cheese and selling it to the world. I mean we have to make cheese for ourselves and we have to make cheese for the many many tourists that come to the country and really really enjoy cheese. As you know we have listeners all around the world and I suppose not all of them know about those milk regulations you mentioned so if you could just elaborate a little yeah, bit absolutely. about it. I mean to the best of my knowledge uh, raw milk now is illegal in the States in the United States of America. I'm pretty sure that is that is case and if you talk to some raw milk producers um, like raw milk producer Jimmy in in Tume he will say that they're clamping down more and more and what they do is they make the date so short on the milk that it's actually impossible to distribute it anywhere I mean there are there are arguments for it and against it but generally speaking the health authority of Ireland the FSIA don't they, they frown upon it I mean it's not illegal but if you're if you're using raw milk in your cheese there's another barrier to jump over and there are arguments for and against raw milk of course if you're young pregnant or old there are certain difficulties with, with raw milk because there's a possibility of uh, certain bacteria uh, such as E. coli but this is a, a small risk and for most of the population this is not a, a concern whatsoever and particularly because I find most cheesemakers that use raw milk are very fastidious and they're, they're very very careful but in a lot of places all over the world there's a clampdown on raw milk. So that's unpasteurized and unhomogenized milk. And when you pasteurize the milk, of course, you kill all the bacteria. So you can't separate the good bacteria and the bad bacteria. So with raw milk, it has its own good bacteria as well. And when you make the cheese carefully, you keep that bacteria. So in one respect, that's good for you. You have all that lactic acid, all of those good essential bacteria that keep your, your, your gut going. And so we need that. Also, if we take out all the bacteria, then we're going to have the opposite problem in 20 or 30 years when we need uh, supplements. supplements for our immunity that, yeah. is, that, is, that has dropped. And that has happened in so many places where we have less of an immune system. I'm not saying you want to go back 100 years when all milk was unpasteurized and there was no regulation. And of course that was a problem because milk needs to be refrigerated. But it's not to say that all milk needs to be pasteurized uh, always for every single occasion. So, I mean, that's, again, it's a very complicated one, but like I am like for raw milk, not only as in its production, but also in terms of making uh, raw milk cheeses in Ireland. And it, it's essential for the, for the future of Irish cheese. So I think that's it for now. I think so. I and mean, if you have any uh, any questions or queries, I think you can send them in. If you have any interesting uh, things you want us to talk about in, in relation to Irish food or in, in relation to food topics around the world, such as education or waste, we'd be interested to hear from you. Just leave a comment below the podcast and till next time. Goodbye.